Well, good morning, everybody. All right, so we're going to start today like we have all the other weeks in this series with our uh, Bible memorization quoting time. So who's got 2 Timothy 3.16? If you want to quote it, stand up now. We will go around the room and... So who's got it? Anybody? Nobody today? Really? So I got one. I got... Terry's up. Or is your back hurting or are you just standing? You're up? Okay. Two, three, four. Dave Barber's up. Stephen's up. No, no using of the fancy devices here. Okay. All right. So first one I saw. So Second Timothy three sixteen. Okay. We'll see. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction. Absolutely. Very good. Very good. Come on up. Good job. Miss Trish, what do you got? It's and is. All right, we'll come back. Don't sit down yet. I try to find the person that's not paying attention the most and go to them next because it's just more fun that way. So. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Yes. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for inspiration in righteousness. Almost. No. I said inspiration. You did. And for instruction and righteousness. There you go. Very good. Very good. Head on up. Miss Bree? Absolutely it is. Very good. Good job. Miss Dave Barber? Uh, all scripture is given by God. It's profitable for doctrine, for uh, reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. Very good. Also, good job. It's a scripture on my ring. In my oh, it's a scripture ring. on your ring? My seminary ring. Oh, okay. Terry, you got it? All scripture is... <laughs> so the Boldens are having issues this morning, right? That's awesome. All scripture given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction. There you go. Fantastic. All right, Trish. You got it? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction. Oop, you left one. You left the R one out. Reproof. There you go. And instruction in? In Christ Jesus. <laughs> in Christ Jesus. She went with Jesus for the answer. I, I, have a, I, have a, I have a hard time saying no. Instruction in r- righteousness. There we go. Fantastic. Come on up. Right. Oh, Stephen? What do you get? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for correction. For, for instruction. No, for Yep. Herb, Herb Dean's going to have to jump in. And <laughs> he would already stop this. <laughs> 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 For correction. There you go. There we go. All right, we got it. There we go. Good job. Nobody likes reproof. Nobody likes reproof, do they? That's right. I wonder 
if that's a Freudian slip or if that's just the way that works, right? That's, that's good. Okay, so let's start this morning. Uh, we're going to look at inspiration. Um, I'm sorry. We're going to look at inerrancy this morning. Um, the inerrancy of Scripture and really looking at what that means. Um, most people cover this when they're, when they're covering these types of uh, concepts. That this is kind of a subset of the authority of Scripture. Uh, and Grudem gives it, gives it its own chapter because of the pushback about inerrancy of Scripture in our world today because there are just so many more people that do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, especially in Christian circles, uh, which really should bother us quite a bit. Uh, so I want to start back up a little bit and talk about story for just a second. Um, so think about your favorite story. It may be a book, it may be a movie, it may be something that you personally experienced, but your, your favorite story. Um, I heard an author talk one time about what a story is, and a story is a character who wants something and overcomes some conflict to get it. And odds are, if, if whatever your favorite story is, it involves those three things. This character, sometimes it's even a group of characters, that really passionately want something. It could be uh, money, it could be uh, love, it could be restoration of a relationship, it could be lots and lots of different things, but there's some kind of a conflict that is overcome to get that thing. And the more unbearable the conflict is, the more it just eats you up and brings you to the brink of, I cannot take any more, the better the story is. Because the more sucked in we are to this story. Uh, my favorite story, uh, apart from the story of the scripture, is the Shawshank Redemption. I think it is just a fantastic story of overcoming, and I mean, he's just, it's amazing. It's an absolutely amazing story. And in most stories, there is somebody that acts as a quasi-narrator who points the reader or the watcher or the listener toward this is what's true, this is kind of where we're going, this is the perspective that we're in. And as God tells this story of really all things from before the creation of the world to fixing all things, God has put something in our hands that acts as a narrator, that acts as a guidepost of truth, so that we can make sense of all of these things that are going on. Because most of us, that favorite story, if we didn't have that one character that was saying, okay, this is where we're going, this is some context here, this is the truth, all of these other little pieces wouldn't make sense, and the story would drive us crazy. So without the truthfulness of Scripture, if you take that out of our lives, this life makes no sense. Right? This is what Solomon talked about in Ecclesiastes. Under the sun, everything's vanity. This is just ridiculous. It's absolutely awful. So when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, the truthfulness of Scripture, it is critical that the Scripture is true and that God is a truth teller because if He is not, then we have no correct context for our lives. It is the guidepost of our lives as we walk through. So this is not just an intellectual exercise it is not a blank to be filled in on an outline because it rhymes with uh, two other eyes. It is really, really important stuff as we live our lives because it is, it is part of that context that we, uh, that we bank on. So uh, the memory passage review, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration to God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So Grudem defines the inerrancy of scripture here. It's your first blank. 
The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. So let's, let's simplify this a little bit. The next blank. Uh, it means that the Bible always tells the truth. And that it always tells the truth concerning everything that it talks about. Now, um, does the Bible talk about everything? No. So, so we're not saying that it is a comprehensive resource for all knowledge and all facts. That's not what we're saying here. That's not what inerrancy means. Inerrancy means when the Bible makes a statement, that statement is true. Quite simple. So let's look at a couple things. Um, the Bible, number one here under the meaning of inerrancy, the Bible can be inerrant and still speak in the ordinary language of everyday speech. So Ecclesiastes 1.5, you don't have to turn there, it says, The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rose. Now, if you understand the nature of the universe, does the sun rise and does the sun set? If we're looking at it from a universal perspective, the answer is no, it doesn't rise and it doesn't set. What's happening? The earth is spinning and the earth is revolving around the sun and the sun's actually spinning and the sun's actually revolving around the center of the solar system because it's not exactly the center, it's actually a little off. And that's spinning the the solar system is spinning, and that's rotating around the center of the galactic center. It's amazing how much stuff is in motion right now. It will make you sick to your stomach if you knew how many directions you're being spun right now. It's amazing. That's the reality, is that all this stuff is in motion. But our perspective on the earth is that the sun comes up and the sun goes down. Those types of statements do not make the Bible wrong, right? Because from the perspective of the person telling this story, that is a true statement. The sun rises and the sun sets. This makes sense? So we're allowed to use ordinary average language in the Bible and the Bible still be true. Uh, numbers. Have you ever read through the book of Numbers? How many of you enjoyed reading through the book of Numbers? No hands are up right now? Numbers is awesome. We celebrated Pi Day this last week. It was fantastic, right? Uh, yeah, so Numbers has a whole lot of verses like Numbers 135. Those who were numbered with the tribe of Manasseh were 32,200. Woo! Yay, 32,300. Hashtag 32,300, right? I mean, put that on a T-shirt, get some bumper stickers made up. This is exciting stuff. So what does that mean? Well, that means there were about 32,200 people in the tribe of Manasseh. So if we went and did an exact census, would there be exactly 32,200? Maybe. Might be up a little. down. It's in that ballpark, right? That whole, that whole chapter of Numbers chapter 1 rounds to the nearest hundred. Every number in there rounds to the nearest hundred. Okay. Well, there's a level of imprecision that still allows us to tell the truth, right? So, uh, Julie, is your name Julie Fleming? Yes, it is, right? Would everybody agree her name is Julie Fleming? Is that your full name? No, what's your full name? Julia. Yes, I do. Julia Ann Godfrey Fleming. That's, the, that's all of it in there. But you don't introduce yourself like that, right? No, because you're a Fleming baby. That's right. <laughs> um, so there is truthfulness in Julie Fleming. There is truthfulness in Julia Ann Godfrey Fleming. 
She was jag before she met me. Can you believe that? <laughs> I took that away from her. It was awful. She's still bitter about it. That's okay. Um, so, so there's ordinary language. There's uh, everyday speech. This is okay. The next blank there is that biblical statements can be imprecise and still be totally true. Inerrancy has to do with truthfulness, not with the degree of precision with which events are reported. Okay. Now, this is going to bother some of you, and I expect it to bother some of you. That's okay. Um, this is not about precision. This is about truthfulness. Are we accurately relaying the meaning of what went on here? Okay. Now, there are spots in the New Testament and in the Old Testament where very specific numbers are used. One that I still hadn't reconciled is that uh, Jesus told them to cast their net and there was a specific number of fish that were brought in. Anybody know how many fish that were brought in? It was 153. Like, what? Somebody counted it, right? So one of the disciples was like, one, two, three, four. Uh, he's probably an accountant in the group. I don't know, right? It's, they had to know. They just had to know and get that number right. And 150, well, if it's 153, I bet you there's 153 fish that they pulled in over the, in the net, right? So there's, there are places where there's an extreme precision, and there are places where this is general, and that is good enough. Okay? So I don't want, you to, I don't want that to bother you. Uh, big number two, the Bible can be inerrant and still include uh, loose or free quotations. Uh, how many of you have a Bible translation where in one of the Gospels, Jesus is quoted as saying this, and in another one of the Gospels, he's quoted as saying something really, really, really close to that? And it's the same scene on the same day, but the two writers didn't get the quote exactly the same. You ever read that? Kind of been like, what, do, what bucket do I put that in? You put that in inerrancy. Because in first century, if you got the meaning and the context and the main themes of what somebody said right, you were quoting them. It's called loose quotations. Nowadays, in modern American English, we love to get everything perfectly quoted correctly. You see these quotation marks. Most of your Bibles actually have quotation marks in them now. There were no punctuation marks in Hebrew or in Greek. Actually, most of it was just smushed together. You, you really couldn't even tell where one word ended and one word began. Imagine that. Imagine you take all of the punctuation and all of the spaces out of your Bibles. Go do your devotions. No paragraph markers, no spaces, no punctuation. No capital, no lowercase. Uh, sign me up, sign me up, right? Yeah, so we have put those things in to make it more clear. So when modern English translators use quotation marks and the quotes look different in one place than they do another place, that is because we are putting precision in where the Bible did not intend precision to be. All right? So our own desire for it must be perfect because we like perfectly sharp corners and we like neat rooms and we like everything is put away nicely and we like Ikea squeaky clean, right? Yes. How many of you are Ikea squeaky clean people? Nobody? You better acknowledge it. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Come on. Don't leave me hanging out here. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Beck. Um, so so that, uh, inerrancy leaves room for this. Uh, and then number three, it's consistent with inerrancy to have unusual or uncommon grammatical constructions in the Bible. 
You ever read anything in your translation and you went, my English teacher would have problems with that. You ever read anything like that? Okay, so your blank is that, what's the two words on either side? It says, good grammar does not equal inerrancy. Good grammar does not equal inerrancy. You, you do not have to have perfect grammar. Who did God use to write the scripture? And this is true in the original languages too. They, they break all kinds of grammar rules in the, in the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the Greek. He used people, right? Do we always use perfect grammar? No. I didn't, did I? No. Thank you. I was so hoping somebody would say that. Good. That was on purpose, by the way. Um, the, uh, so, and what should it be? Correct grammar. Thank you. So if you want to correct my grammar in the sentence and have a better, you can feel free to do that. Um, so it, it's not about inerrancy. So these things that, that we sometimes feel like we have to have way more precise or perfect quotes or exact grammar, that's not what inerrancy is about. Inerrancy is about truthfulness in communication. Truthfulness in communication. That's what inerrancy, inerrancy is all about. All right, so some challenges to inerrancy. This is, again, one of the things that I love about Grudem's book is that he, he talks about the rocks that folks throw at us that believe this. So, uh, number one, the Bible is only authoritative for faith and practice. You ever heard this phrase before? The Bible is our source for faith and practice. You heard of this? I, I believe that. I, th- I think that is absolutely true. But I don't think there's a period at the end of that. I think there's a comma. And it is true in everything that it speaks about. Right? That's the way this works. There's not a period there. Second uh, Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration to God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Uh, Psalm 12.6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Proverbs 35, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in Him. This is, this is not just for faith and practice. It is what is in the book is true. Everything that is in the book is true. So, um, a really good example of this, and, and you've heard Brother Gary say many times, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, the Bible so let's do that. So I need uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven volunteers. Just raise your hand. I just need you to read a passage of Scripture. So Bree, you've got Matthew twelve forty. Okay, who's next? Keith, you've got Luke four twenty seven. Darla, you've got John three fourteen. That's a good verse too, by the way. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Sean, Hebrews 7, 1 and 2. Who else we got? Dave. Hebrews 12, 16 and 17. And then I need one more. We got 2 Peter 2, 16. All right? So one of the ways to illustrate that the details in the Bible are true as well is that to see the New Testament writers quoted detail in the Old Testament. All right? This is an example of how this is true. So we're going to read some New Testament passages and see if we can find the detail, the facts, that don't have anything to do with faith and practice. These don't have anything to do with faith and practice. These are just facts. So, Bree, what do you got? Matthew 12, 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what did Matthew assume about Jonah? He was in a... He was in a fish, okay? That doesn't have anything to do with faith and practice because the last time I checked, being in a fish was not something that I experienced last week, okay? Right? Okay. Luke four twenty seven. Keith? Yeah. And the 
there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet none, not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Only Naaman. So there was a guy named Naaman, and he was a Syrian, and he was cleansed of leprosy. Facts in the New Testament that are quoted as facts from the Old Testament. Doesn't have anything to do with faith and practice. Who's got John 3.14? Darla, do you have that one? Just as Moses lift up, lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So Moses lifted, lifted up a serpent in the desert, right? Did Luke see that? No. How did Luke know that was true? It was written in the Scriptures. The details are important. Who's got 1 Corinthians 10, 11? There's a lot going on in this one. So. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So what are the things that they're talking about? Scroll up and I'll let you give a summary here in just a second. There's all kinds of things that, that Paul talks about, and he didn't know he was going to give us a chapter summary of this. That's okay, we'll give him a second. All kinds of things that Paul talks about, and he assumes that are facts from the Old Testament, because what does God do with all those details from the Old Testament? They end up mattering, don't they? Because they're looking forward, and we're telling a bigger story. All of these little things are the little pieces of conflict that we're overcoming, that God is overcoming to reconcile us to himself to restore a relationship because that's what he really wants. And the inerrancy of the scripture, if it's not true, is a problem for our storytelling God. Because all these little details that he's been using to support the fact that redemption is going to take place challenge the redemption itself if they're not true. Does this make sense? These are big, hairy concepts for early in the morning, I understand. All right, so what, what happened? What did Paul assume was true in 1 Corinthians uh, 10? People were people. People were people, right? That the Israelites actually went through the sea, that they ate food, that they drank, that they sat down, that they rose up, that they danced, that they grumbled. He mentions grumbling in there a few times, right? And that they were ultimately uh, dealt with because of that. So who's got Hebrews 7, 1, and 2? Oh, yep, okay. Hebrews 7, 1, and 2. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem... Nice pronunciation there. Thank you very much. I've been listening to the Bible on tape. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. Returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Absolutely. So Melchizedek was a real dude, and he did what with his cash? Or his stuff. I should probably say stuff, because stuff is a little more general there. He gave how much to... Yeah, he gave a ten, I'm sorry, Abraham gave a tenth to... Because that's why you're looking at me funny. You're going, you didn't get the facts right there, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> that, so that's a heck of a fun question to try to answer in the scriptures, by the way. So Abraham was a real guy. He gave a tenth of what he had to Melchizedek. Who's got Hebrews 12, 16, and 17? Yep, Dave. Like Esau, who for a morsel of food uh, sold his birthright. For you know that afterward he went and wanted to inherit the blessing. He was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. There you go. So Esau was a real guy, and he sold a real birthright for what? Soup. Soup. 
I know, it's like the soup Nazi in the Old Testament, right? It's, it's just hilarious. Second Peter 2.16, we'll finish with one that's uh, a great story in the Old Testament. Uh, one of the best passages, if you want some homework, you can go look up this story. Uh, and it talks about, there's a quote in there that talks about uh, how this particular really evil person at this time makes this profound truth about God and the nature of God's communications. I'm sorry, I just stepped on your purse. Um, and then I told the whole room because I whispered it into a microphone, so that was great, yes. Second uh, Peter 2.16. That he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. I love that the Bible says the donkey spoke with a man's voice. I'm not going to say it, but you just you just let that run, okay? That's right. Um, so, so the fact that is conveyed here is that this donkey spoke, right? What does that have to do with faith and practice? I grew up on a farm. We had donkeys. They never talked, ever. Never, like not even on a, a really cool day. It just, they didn't talk. That's not what happened. See, these New Testament writers knew that they could bank on these Old Testament facts. And this gave them confidence in God and confidence in His Word. When He gets the little stuff right, you get confidence in people. So, what's the blank? It seems clear that the Bible itself does not support any restriction on the kinds of subjects to which it speaks with absolute authority and truth. It's kind of cool, right? The Bible doesn't restrict itself. If we talk about this subject, it's true. Now, I'm going to run through the next couple of things here uh, real quick because most of these were, were not things that I have personally experienced in my conversations with folks talking about the inerrancy of Scripture. Grudem says that some people tell him that the, inerrancy, the term inerrancy itself is a poor term because it doesn't show up in the Bible. Well, neither does the word trinity or the word incarnation, but both communicate really awesome truth in a distinctly succinct way that help us understand the bigger picture, right? It's okay. We're allowed to use words that aren't in the Bible. Yes. (laughs) Imagine that, right? This is okay. Yeah, this is okay. Uh, Number three, we have no inerrant manuscripts, therefore talk about an inerrant Bible is misleading. So uh, let's talk for just a second. This could be a good example. Um, This is how I come up with most of my examples, by the way. I just look at things lying around the room and... That's what pops into my head, so I start talking about it. Um, so this is Rick Warren's what? Book. Yes. Wow. That is. So Balaam's donkey was a... Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I love you, man. This is Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. It's a really good book. Uh, it does not supersede the Bible. It is not better than the Bible. It summarizes a lot of really good things in... Very clear language. This is not the first edition. This is the probably fourth or fifth edition, if you got really technical from an editor's perspective. Um, One of the things that we do when we publish books is edition one generally has what in it? A couple errors, right? Because nobody knew should we really pile a whole bunch of money into making sure this thing is perfect before we print and see if it takes off. Oh, it took off. Well, let's go make it a little better. And let's go make it a little better. And let's change the cover and add a new chapter and sell it again to all the same people who bought it the first time, right? It's brilliant marketing, absolutely brilliant marketing. 
This, however, is not how the Bible was copied. So there are things called autographs. These were the physical documents that the person who the Holy Spirit was speaking through wrote on or who the, I can't ever say the word, Emmanuelus, what's the word? That Paul spoke to somebody and this guy wrote it down, but it was Paul's word. Yeah, this was the scribe. Absolutely, thank you. There's a better word for it, but I can't pronounce it, so we'll just leave it at that. You can Google it. No, you can't because you can't uh, type it in there. Um, I don't know how you'd look that up. So the person that's actually, the, the, the original physical document, and at the end of that document, the, the author would do what? Sign his name. Put his autograph there. We call those the autographs. We don't have any of the autographs, and that's a good thing. Because if we had the autographs, guess what? They'd be relics, and they'd be worshipped. And there'd be churches built around them, and we would go, and we would you know, pray to them probably and do all sorts of really stupid things to a piece of parchment, <clears throat> right? Just not smart. So folks went, and they made copies of these, 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 and they made copies of these. And they do things called textual criticism. It's really, really ridiculously complicated, where they can tell the source document based on the copies and the nature of the copies. It's, it's, it's really, I mean, you ought to Google it sometime if you've got like 12 hours to waste. Um, and there is uh, analysis that can be done that puts credibility or lack of credibility in certain of these copies based on consistencies or inconsistencies in them. Because not every copy was perfect. I'll gladly admit that. Not every copy was perfect. But we know where the discrepancies are. And for vastly, vastly more than 99% of all the Old Testament and all the New Testament, we are 100% certain that we have exactly what was the originally written. And for those spots where we're not sure, almost every single one of your Bibles has a little note. Note, some later manuscripts don't include this part of this verse. Right? And in no cases, in any of those instances, is any major doctrine of Scripture challenged. Not in one. Most of the time, it's either uh, the Lord Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus. Okay. I think we got the big picture. Whichever way we go here, this is okay. So, just because we don't have... An inerrant manuscript doesn't mean inerrant manuscripts weren't present. Does this make sense? Okay. We'll come back up out of the weeds. Go quickly now as we finish. So number four, the Bible writers accommodated their messages in minor details to the false ideas current in their day and affirmed or taught those ideas in an incidental way. I'm like, what in the world? I had to read that like 60 times this week, okay, before I figured it out. Uh, The authors did not correct errors of their day to communicate their messages. Right? So there were some scientific errors that were present in the day that many of these folks wrote, and they didn't go and stop and say, well, let's explain the science here, and we'll correct all of this, and then we'll come back to the theological point that we're trying to make. Well, no, it's not. God wasn't writing a science book. That wasn't his purpose. So he didn't stop and do that. Um, number five, inerrancy overemphasizes the, the divine aspect of Scripture and neglects the human aspect. I, I actually don't think it does. Um, I think a proper view of inerrancy does not exclude human involvement. It magnifies divine oversight. Right? God used people to write the Scripture. That's awesome. That's fantastic. 
inherent in that statement is that God communicates with man. That's good for us, right? That is great for us. Uh, number six, people say that there are some clear errors in the Bible. So Gary Jared's quote is, show me. That's right, show me. Um, Google has deluded us into thinking that we have to have the answer in 0.17 seconds to everything. You know how you, you type a question into Google and it says, it took Google 0.00176934 seconds to get this. And you're like, relax, Google. You got the job. Okay? You don't have to keep impressing us every time saying how fast you did this. But um, yeah, show me. Just, just show me. Uh, Grudem's got a great philosophy on this. He says, if we believe that the Bible is indeed inerrant, we should be eager and certainly not afraid to inspect these texts in minute detail. There's a neat idea, isn't it? Absolutely. Let's dive in. Let's take a look. This is okay. And then he follows it up a couple paragraphs later with this. Our understanding of Scripture is never perfect. And this means that there may be cases where, we'll be, where, we, where we will be unable to find a solution to a difficult passage at the present time. That is okay. That is my issue, not God's issue. Okay? Does this make sense? All right. So problems with denying inerrancy. And this is the real issue here today. So if we deny inerrancy, a serious moral problem confronts us. Uh, how do we imitate God and intentionally lie in small matters also? So Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. It says be imitators of God. So if the Bible is not inerrant, if God got some of this stuff wrong, are we allowed to get some facts wrong as well? Ooh, that's a neat question, isn't it? So if I'm supposed to imitate God, do I have to throw in some incorrect information every once in a while in my communications? Ooh, well, we, we just went down a slippery slope, didn't we? That's pretty, that's pretty problematic for us. So yeah, inerrancy is, is, is a, a major, major fundamental tenet as we look at the Scripture. Uh, the blanks here, it's never right to do wrong to get a chance to do right. Uh, number two, if inerrancy is denied, we begin to wonder if we can really trust God in anything He says. Well, if God got this little fact wrong, what else did he get wrong? Did he get some major thing wrong? What's, what's, this is a problem for us, right? Uh, we make our, number three, we make our own human minds a higher standard of truth than God's word itself. We talked about this last week. You know, what's the highest authority for us? If it's the scripture, then it's the scripture. If it's not the scripture, then it's my view of whatever else that I think it is. So it's either me or the scripture. It can't be both. And number four, if we deny inerrancy, then we must also say that the Bible is wrong, not only in minor details, but in some of its doctrines as well. So how can we, how can we be sure? So, summarize today. Psalm 12.6 is the memory passage for today. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. And this is the hymn for today, The Law of the Lord is Perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So, inerrancy of Scripture. Going back to the introduction... It's the fundamental guideposts that point us in the right direction as we go through this story of redemption. If we challenge this, if we reject this, the story doesn't make sense. So when you talk to folks who are going through life 
and they ask you, why does this happen? Why is this happening? And they reject the guideposts as we go through. That's why it makes no sense. There's no fundamental source of truth that says this is the way. Does that make sense? A lot about inerrancy. Inerrancy is a big, hairy topic. I, I took about 10% of what Grudem had in that chapter and taught it today. Literally, there's a whole bunch more, and you can go way far down deep in that rabbit hole. So I would encourage you to do so if you are so inclined. So thanks for coming to Sunday School today. Um, there's a couple of announcements on here. The top one, please, please, please make sure that um, we pick up these totes. Uh, we need to clean the eggs. Uh, apparently, we put the eggs from the Easter at Coolidge in the totes last year and sealed them up. So we need some folks to take some totes home and uh, wash the totes and the eggs and then bring them back by the 30th because that would be great. Um, we, we laugh and joke sometimes about being Jesus' hands and feet. Yep, he needs some hands and soap, too, so we've got to get that fixed. Uh, and then there's a handout, uh, another, not a handout, but another announcement about uh, the McGarvey's uh, St. Patrick's Day party. Looking forward to that. be awesome. Cool about that. And uh, breakfast bucket money as well. So last week, I think we had four buckets with money in it, so if we could help restore a little here. So this table makes sense. I would not expect any money in this table. Uh, but the others, we need to kind of help pitch in here. So uh, write down your prayer requests, pray as a group, and you are dismissed. Thank you for coming to Sunday School today.